Second Corinthians chapter five, verses one through eleven tonight. Are you ready to die? That's not a threat. I mean <laughs> But it's yeah, there you go. It's a it's something we're gonna be looking at tonight because this was one of the things that made Paul so fearless. This man had absolutely no fear of death. I don't know how many of us could honestly say that. Let's get a running start. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, verse 1, but really uh, some of the things that we're going to learn tonight about Paul and his perspective on death really begin in, uh, well, probably further back than this, but chapter 4, verse 16, we'll begin there. Uh, if you are taking notes, if you want to, on down the side of your page, you can put a bunch of P's. Uh, there is, we're going to find out Paul's perspective on life. We're going to find out about Paul's perspective on death, on the grave. We're going to find out that Paul was prepared to die. We're going to find out that Paul was actually pleased with the idea of dying. We're going to find out that Paul's whole aim was to please the Lord, whether he was living or dead. And then finally, Paul's, uh, another one of Paul's tasks was to uh, persuade men. That's a bunch of P's. So down the side of your page, it should say, <laughs> all right. First, let's look at Paul's perspective on life and its troubles. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 16. We're just going to review this real quick. Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We saw this last time. Last Thursday, Paul has this eternal perspective. Everything, absolutely everything that happened in Paul's life was viewed through the lens of eternity. And if you read with us 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you know that includes for Paul beating, whipping, stoning, being shipwrecked, being in jail, earthquakes, all sorts of things that happened to Paul. He looked through every single one of them through the lens of of eternity, and ended up, he ended up saying, it's just, look at verse, uh, verse 17, it's just, ah, it's just a light affliction. Just a light affliction, huh? Well, look at verse 18. He says, uh, for we do not look at the things which are seen. The word look there we saw was uh, scopio. It means to focus, to really study upon something. Paul didn't focus on the brutal circumstances that he saw in his own life, but on the glory that was awaiting him in eternity. He didn't focus on that which was seen, which is easy to see, but that which was unseen, the thing that he had to remind himself, there's a, a weight of glory up in heaven. His perspective on life was this. Basically, my life is just a blink. It's a vapor. And all of the hardships, he says, are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You can see Paul is looking forward, which leads us to the next P. Paul here shares with us his perspective, not on just life, but his perspective on death. Look with me now, chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. First, I want you to notice that word. It says, we know. 
He didn't say, for we think that if this earthly house, uh, we hope that what we're saying is true. If you ask some people where they're going when they die, some of them will say, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. I mean, I'm trying to get there. I, I mean, I'd like to think that I'm going to heaven. What a tenuous position to have on the most important question that you ever could face. You guys know, I'm sure. You don't have to know, or you don't have to hope. You don't have to wish. You can know. In verse uh, 6, Paul even says again, he says, this is why we're always confident. It's because we know these things. Let me give you a little clue, a little, uh, you know how you go to a, a different foreign nation and you have a book that translates things for you? Right. Um, when you hear someone say, well, I hope I get to heaven. Let me translate that for you. I don't know about Jesus. Please tell me about Jesus. <laughs> when you when you hear someone say, well, I kind of think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm going to go to heaven. That is code for rescue me. Please tell me about Jesus. Say to them, when you hear someone say that, look, you can know where you're going to go. You can know where you are headed when you die. Let me tell you about where I know I'm going. Jesus told me that he is preparing a place for me. And you can come too. If you want, you can turn with me to John 14. We're not going to spend a lot of time there. John 14, verse 1. Jesus is setting the scene for his disciples. He says, guys, I'm on my way out of here. He says, but let not your heart be troubled, verse 1. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, he basically saying, I'm going to heaven, and the way you know. Now, Thomas stops him and says, uh, not exactly. Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And that's when Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you hear someone say, I don't know where I'm going, or I kind of hope that I'm going to heaven, you can take them right here to this verse and say, I know where I'm going because Jesus told me, and he wants you to come along too. And right there in verse 6, Jesus lays it out. You have to either look at him as a, as a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. He says, there's no way to get to heaven except through me. Now back, back to our text, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. This is Paul's perspective on death. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul here is talking about his own physical body as a tent. Now, some of you guys really like to go camping, right? Raise your hand if you really like to go camping. You guys have that camping bug, right? I don't have that virus. But if you are one that likes to camp, you really love to camp, you know all about tents, right? Tents are the most temporary of housing. You, you put it up, you stay in it for a few days or weeks, and then you take it down and you move on. Now, Paul was very familiar with tents. His tent-making job was tent-making. 
he knows he knew that they were animal skins stretched over wooden poles tied to stakes they weren't particularly impressive but very functional very portable hmm that sounds like jars of clay that we've been learning about paul has been talking a lot if you haven't been with us he's been talking a lot about death and resurrection and what a better picture of paul's body and his ministry for that matter paul would pop up in one town pitch his tent there and then the winds of opposition and persecution would blow and bring that tent down paul's tent his body would be brought low through stoning whipping beating sometimes his tent would actually end up underground in a dungeon yet paul was a pop tent he was a pop-up tent he just kept popping up he was a pop-up camper (laughs) you you could whip this guy and he'd pop back up you could beat him he'd pop back up you could stone him he would pop up you could put him in jail there could be an earthquake he would pop up somewhere else in the city you could run him out of town he would pop up in the next town now again quick survey how many of you really really like camping in tents raise your hand you guys come on raise them up high really like them all right there you go leave them up here um because I'm going I'm to weed out the, uh, the real campers here. Ready? Raise your hand if it was up to you. You would camp in that tent that you love so much for 24 hours or less. Okay? For two days or less. Keep a hand up unless you're... Keep it up. All right? How about for two weeks or less? Where are we, she says. Oh, hold on. I'll get to that. Two months. Anybody willing to camp for two months? All right, well, that, you guys are already wimps. But I was going to say, what if those two months were July and August? So pretty much all of us agree that one thing about a tent was that it's never meant to be permanent, if you can help it. Eventually, you really want a nice hot shower, air conditioning, and your own bed that you don't have to fold in the morning. So it is with our bodies. They were never meant to be permanent. Paul says, verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul's perspective on death. Look, when this tent that I'm in finally comes down for the last time, and there's no more popping back up, when this tent is finally disassembled for the last time, I know what's waiting for me. A building. The word oikodome, it means a permanent structure. Not a flimsy tent that folds or flaps or leaks or creaks and has to, be, has to keep being raised up from the ground up. He's talking about a permanent structure. He says, I know there is waiting for me a body that I'll never have to leave again. A body that is perfectly suited for the neighborhood. That is heaven. He says, and best of all, we have a building made from God. God is the architect, and Jesus is the contractor. He says it's not a house made with hands. No human hands to interfere. You don't have to worry that the sheetrock in your new body was done by the guy with the lowest bid. He says, this is God's in charge of all of it. See, that's Paul's perspective. You know what? When all this is... Said and done, when my tent finally is gone, 
I have something so, so much better waiting for me. That was Paul's perspective. Is it yours? Again, that's, that's not a threat. Are, are you ready to die? Not a threat. It's an honest question. How do you see death? Sometimes we betray how we see death when, for instance, a young person dies, a young believer dies, and we say, oh, that's so sad. He had his whole life ahead of him as though he, something was taken from him. Now, obviously, it's, it's okay to grieve. I'm sure each one, of, each one of you, myself, we have grieved for those that we've loved, but it's mostly because we grieve for ourselves. If they're Christian, we grieve for the fact that we're going to miss them. When we say, what a tragedy, he had his whole life ahead of him, what we're saying is something was taken from that person. Paul's perspective wasn't at all like that. When the sword was lifted up in Rome at the end of Paul's journey, when the sword was about to remove his head, when he heard that last whoosh of the sword, he thought, finally, finally I get to trade in this leaky, battered old tent for my home in a gated community. And his friends, if they had been listening to him, to him teach, they'd been paying attention when that sword finally removed his head from his body and they knew it was done if they were smart they were thinking lucky stiff that was a joke (laughs) because he was he they would be looking at him as fortunate with with this picture in mind the, the idea that paul is saying look this is not death is is what it is it's a move it's simply a move from this nasty tent to a wonderful habitation, a building not made with hands that will not be destroyed. With this picture in mind, imagine how ludicrous some of our conversations about death sound, like from heaven's perspective. Did you hear about Aunt Sally? You know, the one living in that leaky old tent for all these years. It's so terrible. She went to live in a mansion. Paul says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, verse 2, in this tent, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Paul says we groan, earnestly desiring. The word groan there means to sigh. And he says earnestly desiring. This is a longing, a looking forward to something. If you, if you don't know how to illustrate this, your kids illustrate this for you every time you go on a long trip. That groaning. <sighs> are we there yet? Oh, how much longer? Are we there yet? And then one minute later, are we there yet? That's how Paul felt about his new body. He says we, we earnestly, we, we groan, we earnestly desire to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. Now, I didn't really get this verse, the whole groaning and yearning for our new habitation until the first time my back went out. Now I get it. Now I can demonstrate this groaning every time I get in and out of my car. Oh, got a, a sound. Damien Kyle says that as you get older, every movement comes with its corresponding sound. <laughs> the tent creaks. 
It snaps, it crackles, it pops. And we earnestly desire to be clothed with the building in heaven. But notice, I don't know if you saw this, Paul is mixing metaphors. He's not only talking about building, but about clothes. He says, um, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation. Now, the word habitation there actually means literally house, but it's also used for clothes. That's where we get the phrase that a, a nun's wardrobe is called her habit, right? This habitation, verse 2, he says, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, if indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. That can be a little confusing. Let me read to you the New Living Translation. It helps a lot. Verse 3 reads this way, New Living Translation. For we will not be spirits without bodies, but we will put on new heavenly bodies. See, Paul is probably clearing up some confusion here in Corinth. Remember, way, way back, chapter 1 of the first book, the Corinthian church was more influenced by Corinth than they were impacting Corinth. And a popular, popular belief among pagans and other religions was that the flesh that, that was on you, the, the flesh and bones, skin, all matter, for that matter, was evil. And that when you died, you became a disembodied spirit, and that was a good thing. That as you completely were without any kind of matter, then somehow things were better. It ended up with this philosophy of a disembodied spirit. <laughs> right? Paul says, look, it's not like that. Matter of fact, one of the worst things you could possibly do is show up in heaven naked. To show up in heaven, what I mean is with the wrong clothes on, ill-clad. When he says naked, what it means is to be ill-clad. You remember the, the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22. Jesus spoke of an imposter who came to the feast with no wedding garment on. What was the, the decree was, bind this guy hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Naked means to be ill-clad. You do not want to show up in heaven without Jesus' robes. Of righteousness. You certainly don't want to show up in heaven with your own robes. You may, you may think they look righteous, but they are as filthy rags before him. Look at verse 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. Paul is talking about death. He says, For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. I can't seem to get this camping picture out of my head. Picture Paul here as a camper. He's got a, a backpack, a heavy load. He's got his tent in there. And he's been on a long journey. And he is approaching his mansion made without hands. And he is groaning. Now we're tempted as, as he's making this he's journey for, for years and years, miles and miles. We're tempted to think that he groans. That when that groan maybe means, oh, this pack is so heavy. I just could barely take one more step. I just can't wait till I can lay this heavy burden down. Apparently, that's not what this groan is all about. Let me take you back to verse 1 real quick. Where he says, um, when this tent is destroyed, in verse 1, it's kataluo. It actually means to unloose, to undo. This was really interesting to me. It's used, this is straight from, uh, straight from the concordance, this word is used of travelers when they halt on a journey, when they stop to lodge. 
It says the figurative expression originating, uh, originated in the circumstance that to put up for the night, they would unloose the straps and the packs on the uh, ox or the, the donkey, and they would take stuff off. And it says, actually, more correctly, this was used uh, when they untied, they had the, t- the traveler's garments, someone who was traveling, he untied the garments off of this beast so that he could wear these new clothes. Now, I hope you're following me here. I'm not a camper again, but I think I get this. The reason Paul is groaning is not so much of the burden of this life, but because of the overwhelming glory of the next. He's, he's like a camper that walks up to his mansion and, and says, you know what, I can't wait to get out of these smelly, sweaty, ratty clothes and get a good, hot shower and into my exquisitely tailored new clothes. Do you get it? Paul isn't just about escaping the burden. Sometimes it takes for us these great burdens for us to finally say, Lord, come quickly. These really tough circumstances for us to finally say that. For Paul, it wasn't necessarily just about getting rid of the burden. What about for you? What about for me? See, there are two kinds of groans on a journey. You can groan because you're saying, I can't wait for it to end. It's just please let it end. Or there's the groan which is, I can't wait to get there. Paul's was the latter. Paul's was fueled by the desire for a homecoming, a joyous meeting. And notice something else about Paul's perspective. I love this. Death is not about losing something. It's about getting something more. Do you see that? Verse 4, he says, For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. Christian, death is not about subtraction for you. If you know the Lord, it's not about losing stuff, losing things. It's about addition. So much so that look at what he says at the end of verse 4. He says, But further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Man, that's an amazing picture. He says that death may be swallowed up by life. That word life, we've seen it a lot lately. When Paul said back in chapter 4, he said sometimes we need to die that the life of Jesus may be manifest in us. That word is zoe, is life. It's the abundant life. It means life abundant, uh, full of vitality and vigor, real and genuine, an active life. I don't know if you, if you see this, but Paul's perspective is completely, absolutely turned around from the world's. See, for most of the world, the grave, listen, the grave is a small plot of land where, the death, where death opens up and it swallows up your loved ones. And then eventually, it swallows up you. Listen to Paul's perspective. For Paul, the grave is where all the dying that I've done in this life, all the death that I've seen, all of it is swallowed up in abundant life. Do you get it? For the world, the the grave is where where death swallows up the living. But for Paul, the grave is where life swallows up death. I, I hope you're understanding this. 
Paul looks at this as like abundant life opens wide and swallows death and divorce and autism and financial worries and cancer and parenting worries. Abundant life opens up wide and swallows up mortality. And I get a funny picture of the abundant life swallowing all this up and with one last burp, it's gone. Mortality is gone. All of that stuff is completely gone and what is left is abundant life. Paul saw death as just a meal for the abundant life in eternity. How do you see things? Do you see the grave as waiting to just swallow up your life? Or do you see the abundant life preparing to swallow up the grave? One thing for sure is very clear to me. Paul was prepared for death. How did he get that way? We've seen Paul's perspective on life. We've seen his perspective on death. Now, how was it that Paul got so prepared for death? Look at verse 5. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing... Is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Lisa mentioned to me yesterday that this verse, chapter uh, 5, verse 5, is sometimes uh, quoted out of context at like a commissioning service. Uh, when you send out a missionary, sometimes they will say, God has prepared you for this very thing, to go to Managua or Peru. And not that that's not true, but it's out of context here. The very thing Paul is talking about that God has prepared him for is death how do you how do you get this kind of perspective on death and life how do you get to be as brave as paul how do you get to enjoy life on the razor's edge of death maybe you know someone who's facing death how could you ever help them to to be prepared for death well Chapter 5, verse 5 is a great place to start. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. They need to know God. God will prepare them for this very thing. If any of you are facing death, God will prepare you for this very thing. Who has also given us the spirit, it says, as a guarantee. We've seen that before. The word guarantee is erebone. It means a down payment. Like if you're serious about purchasing something, you put down earnest money, they call it. It means that you are earnest. You're serious about buying this. For instance, uh, if you were to sell your car, say, I want to sell this for $5,000. Some guy shows up. He says, I love this car. I, I got, I got $5,000 in the bank, and I can be back in two hours, but I don't have it right now. Will you please hold this for me? Please, here, here. Here's $200 in my wallet. I will give you this money if you'll hold this for two hours. That is earnest money. That's so that you can say, okay, well, I guess this guy, you know, 200 bucks. If he doesn't come back in two hours, it's mine. I guess he's pretty serious. That's a down payment. Paul says our down payment, our guarantee that God is serious about this transaction, that he will come back and complete this transaction is the Holy Spirit. The spirit within you is God's down payment, that he will complete this transaction. Interesting, that word erebone is still used apparently in Greece today. It's used for an engagement ring. Well, that's interesting. We are called the bride of Christ. 
We know that one day he is returning for his bride. And we have been given the Holy Spirit as just a down payment, just a tiny taste of what lies before us. That means that all of the joy that you feel when you worship, all the cleansing that you experience when you confess, all the freedom that you have, you are beginning to, to taste in Jesus, the glory when we worship, all of that stuff is just a tiny taste prepared for the bride of Christ. You get it? So we've seen Paul's perspective on life, his perspective on death. We've seen that he's definitely prepared to die. Next, we're going to see Paul so much is prepared to die, he would even be pleased to die. Look at verse 6. He says, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. First notice that word confident. It's therio. It means to be of good courage, of good cheer. Again, you look at Paul, you're like, how could this guy be of such good courage? How could he be cheerful in all of these circumstances? It was because of his perspective. He says, knowing that while we are at home in the body, the word is endemio, and in the body we are absent, that word is ectemio. So when he says at home in the body, he means living at home. And when he says absent, the word means to live abroad. It means to be separated but not permanently, right? He says, we are to be, we are, uh, when we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Paul says the reason we are in such good cheer is that we basically can't lose. He says, as long as I'm in this body, I can serve the Lord from abroad. I can serve the Lord from where I am. I can lay up treasure in heaven. I can send it forward to my king. But he says, verse 7, but this right now, this is the hardest part, is walking by faith but not by sight. He's basically saying, I'm, I have to trust that the beatings, the stonings, and all of the stuff that's happening to me is truly laying up treasure with my king. But he says, there will come a time, verse 8, where I am ectomio, I'm absent from this tent, this ratty old tent, and believe me, with all the stonings and beatings and stuff, Paul would not have been somebody to look at that you would have been impressed with. He says, I can't wait, basically, till I can be absent from this ratty thing and at home, verse 8, with the Lord. To be present with the Lord. You get it? That's why Paul says in verse 8, I'm confident. Yes, I'm well pleased even to die. For him, it was a homecoming. Now, one of the things that this addresses, just if you're into this theological um, uh, perspective here in uh, verses 6 through 8, is the whole idea of soul sleep. If you don't know about it, don't worry too much about it. But if, you, uh, if you've been taught that your soul just kind of goes to sleep in between when you die and uh, when the rapture comes, that can't be right here. It's, that wouldn't be particularly encouraging either. But notice he says, when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. And when we are present with the body, we are absent from the Lord. Now, you know what he means when he says absent from the Lord. It's not like we can't communicate, but there's definitely going to be something much better when we are seeing him face to face. Okay? Um, so, we've seen that he has perspective on life, his perspective on death. We see that he's prepared to die. In fact, he would be pleased to die. And now we're going to see his purpose. Paul's purpose in all of this is just to please God. 
Verse 9, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. See, Paul was not encumbered by the whole fear of death. Basically he says, look, my goal doesn't change. I just want to please my king. Whether he gives me one more day to serve him, if he gives me one more trial to go through, to, to lay up more treasure in heaven, or whether he calls me home today, my aim is just to please him. Now, if you are a Christian, I know that's your ultimate aim. That's what you really want, is just to please him. But, but let me ask it this way. How is your aim currently? I know your ultimate aim is to please him, but how is your aim lately? You gotten just a little bit off target? Have I gotten just a little bit off target? We, if, you, if that's describing you, your ultimate aim is to please him, but you're a little off target, you might want to refocus your aim tonight, particularly in light of verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, that's a pretty sobering thing. It should make us take pause. But I want to make sure that no one here misunderstands. This is not the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Um, that's, that judgment is a really, really... Uh, terrible thing and probably the best way to describe it is that it's an open and shut case the one in Revelation 20 the great white throne judgment because it's open and shut the Lamb's book of life is opened and if your name is not there you are shut out of heaven and you can't work your way into that book you can't somehow worm your way into that book the only way you can get into your name into that book is to give your, your life to Jesus on this side of eternity. If you don't give your life to Jesus now, you will be forever shut out of life with him. That is not what he's talking about here. He's talking about, maybe you've heard of it, the bima seat of Christ. That's the actual word there in the Greek. It's bima. And a bima was a raised step where, like if you saw a throne, a lot of times that's what you'll see on a movie these days. Uh, you see a throne, it's just a chair, a big chair. But... You will see the steps that lead up to it, and it's raised. A bema seat was that. Basically, Herod, the king, had actually built this uh, bema seat uh, in Caesarea where he could see games, the Olympic games, and where he made speeches to the people. And this all brings us back to something that Paul has already talked about, which is when he says, I ran the race, that I might, might hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. What this is is about rewards. This is a different, a different throne than the great white throne. That is an open and shut case. But this is an examining where he says, for we must all appear, verse 10, that word, familiar word to us now, manifest, which is making seen that which was hidden. That which everything that we've maybe tried to hide in our life cannot be hidden from him. Now, we don't know what all this means exactly, but we know that when it comes to rewards, Paul taught us in the, the last book, he said, look, your works, all of them are going to be tested by fire. And all the stuff, even the stuff that looked really good maybe to me, right, uh, or that looked about me looked good to you, the stuff that, that maybe looked good, 
God sees all of it. He sees right to the very heart. He's like, oh, you did that to impress that person. (laughs) Or you wrote that check because you were hoping that these people would think more of you. Those kind of things. Even your your motives will, will have a part in this. But there will be some things that stand the test of fire. The stuff that after the wood, hay, and stubble is all burned away, the stuff that remains is your reward. Now, again, I want to make sure you understand, Jesus has covered every sin in his blood. His blood makes us white as snow. Matter of fact, if if it'll help you, look down at verse 21. It says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, in this context, context, Paul is referring to rewards, as we learn in 1 Corinthians. Um, the only thing I know for sure about this is that Paul kept this in mind all the time, basically. That there's going to come a time when I'm going to stand before Jesus. And he's going to look at all the stuff I did. And some of it is it's going to be tried by fire. And some of it's going to stand. And he's going to say to me, I hope. And I know he is for Paul. He's going to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You've been faithful with the little trials that I gave you, so I gave you bigger ones. And you were faithful with those. And now, he says, come and enter into the joy of your Lord. Take over control, take uh, government over these cities or this area. Paul's perspective on life and on death. We've seen those things. We've seen that he's prepared to die. We've seen that he's pleased to die. We've seen that his purpose that he always kept in mind was to please Jesus. And finally, lastly, his task. The task before him, the way that he sought to please Jesus was this, verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are all well-known to God, and I also trust are well-known in your consciences. Now, those last couple lines first. Paul says, basically, look, I'm trying to impress God. That's, I says, I want to be well known to God. I want, it to, I want God to you know, say, oh, yeah, Paul, I know you, right? He says, I'm trying to impress God. He says, I may or may not be impressing you, Corinthians. But he says, I'm not really about impressing men. But because of the terror of the Lord, he says, I am about persuading men. See, we've just seen there are two judgments, right? There's the great white throne judgment and the Bema seat. Now, both will be auspicious, but one will be completely nothing else but weeping. One will be just terror. Now, the other, we're not sure there may be shedding of tears, but the Bible promises that Jesus will wipe away every tear. And for, for some, this Bema seat will be a great reward, untold riches, exceeding weight of glory. So there's two judgments here. One of them is really, really horrible, really terrible, filled with terror. Knowing this, Paul says, because of that, we persuade men. So there's just one king. His name is Jesus. But there are two thrones, two Thrones of judgment, if you will. And there are two destinations. And all travel arrangements must be made this side of eternity. Paul says, that's why I persuade men. Maybe you guys heard the story about the the man who sent a floral arrangement 
to celebrate the launch of a good friend's new business. And when the sender got to this grand opening celebration, he was shocked to find his flower basket with a card that read, With Deep Sympathy. He was really mad, so he called the florist right away and complained about the mix-up. And the florist said, hey, it could be worse. Somewhere today there's a funeral with flowers that say, good luck in your new location. See, the one thing you need to take away tonight is that death is not, death is not annihilation. It's not just ceasing to exist. It is moving to a new Location. If you are a Christian, the sign that reads next to your casket could say, Congratulations on your promotion. Your promotion from that tent to a building made without hands. But if you're not a Christian, that sign, to put it mildly, should say, With deepest sympathy. Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, I persuade men. It's kind of a convicting moment to end on. Are we persuading men?